Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? A couple of years ago, Facebook, which of course later became Meta, announced the intention to create an oversight board for the purposes of reviewing Facebook's content moderation practices. The company was still is under a ton of pressure to respond to various issues ranging from disinformation campaigns to the proliferation of hate speech. Unfortunately, Facebook's responses were frequently criticized uh, as not being sufficient, uh, as were the company's policies, which had noticeable gaps and transparency issues, thus the creation of the Oversight Board. And the board, while deriving funds from a trust that was created by Facebook, is independent of Meta itself. I had the chance to speak with Dex Hunter Torek, who heads up the communications department at the Oversight Board. We talked about the board's mission, we talked about its history, and how it tackles the challenge of picking and deciding cases that have the potential to impact millions or potentially even billions of users. And what follows is my conversation with him. Enjoy. Dex, welcome to Tech Stuff. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here, Jonathan. I'm really excited to talk to you because the Facebook Oversight Board is something that I've talked about a few times since uh, it first began to, to be a thing a few years ago. But uh, I feel like, and I include myself here, I feel like a lot of people don't have a full understanding of what the board actually does, why it's there, like what necessitated its, uh, its creation, and the process by which it goes through uh, while it's determining the outcome of, of various cases. So I'm so glad to have you here to kind of 
pull back the veil of mystery uh, <laughs> because I think it's very easy, easy for those of us in the media to even unconsciously misrepresent what's happening. Sure. I mean, when you hear about the board, right, and you think there's a group of experts who are focused on things like content moderation standards and Facebook's community standards, you know, the rules that govern um, their platforms, it is something that I think a lot of people sort of skip past, right? It's almost like when you're installing an app on your iPhone, you get those disclaimers and nobody reads them. You just click yes, you know? Um, it's something that's incredibly complex and it sounds quite dry, and it is. And because of that, we naturally gravitate to the more exciting questions about, you know, how should social media be regulated? Um, what are the kind of structural issues within the industry, um, you know, that we can have lots of points of view on? The truth is, those rules that Facebook and now Meta, of course, um, you know, have constructed for platforms like Facebook and Instagram, they have an enormous impact on free speech and human rights around the world. They govern almost every aspect of online discourse today on any given topic. So we really see the value of the board as an institution that is focused on scrutinizing those rules and understanding the impact on people's lives and then working out how to improve them so that we better defend free expression and human rights. That is a uh, incredibly valuable mission. And I would say, I think the other thing to think about with the board is really, um, we are only a small part of the solution to the you know much larger challenges that you know are occurring all across the tech industry and across social media, and in particular with Meta. Um, and I think people often today, where we have such short attention spans and the world is in such crisis, we often think, um, I want a quick solution to all of these problems. And the board is not a quick solution to those problems, and it will only ever be a small part of the overall solutions that we need. But even though it's only part of the solution, I think it can still be incredibly valuable. So that's that's how I go about describing the impact of the board's um, work and our, our sort of purpose in the world. Yeah, and when you look at, as you were mentioning, the world in crisis, I mean, there are crises all over the world where we often see social networks being pulled into them, uh, whether you're talking about Myanmar or Russia and Ukraine or you're talking about India. I mean, there are, there are famous cases, or even here in the United States, um, famous cases all around the world where you have this delicate balancing act of how do you best serve uh, the the customers of Facebook who are actually using the product, or depending on your point of view, the product of Facebook who are using the right. product, uh, and then and then how do you how do you also make sure that uh, it's it's not violating any laws uh, to uphold a certain policy like that? That to me is probably the most complicated part of the the picture because I think a lot of people can have a knee jerk reaction when they see maybe a piece of content being removed uh, or a piece of content staying up when it may seem like it's controversial, but without mm -hmm. having the full understanding of the context, uh, it can, you know, you might not, you might not have the, the, the appreciation of why that move was made. And then of course the oversight board can step in uh, when you have cases where people have appealed uh, an action that Facebook has taken in order to make a judgment over whether or not that was the right call. Am That's I right. more or less getting it right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Um, which is these are incredibly challenging issues where there isn't always an easy right answer. Um, and without the context, you certainly can't make an informed decision about these issues. So I'll give you a, a very specific example. One of the early cases the board took on when we started operating in 2021 uh, was around a speech relating to COVID misinformation. So there was a piece of content that had been taken down by then Facebook from their platform under their COVID misinformation rules. And when the board looked at it, we actually found it was perfectly legitimate speech. It wasn't something that was spreading something that we thought, you know, had a potential of leading to, to imminent harm. It was something that was a legitimate debate about public health policy and how authorities should be responding 
to COVID in uh, France? And these are extraordinarily thorny questions, right? If you have something that seems like it might be in the COVID misinformation space, given how sensitive um, that topic is, given the enormity of the public health emergency, you might as a platform just you know, err on the side of caution and take something down. But if you do that, and if you do that a lot, and you have that sort of cumulative impact on freedom of expression, we are muzzling the ability of communities to have informed debates about these issues. And we need to be able to have those. It is perfectly legitimate to have uh, debates about how, as a society, we should respond to things such as COVID. Another example, just from the last few months, we had a case that involved someone in Sweden who had posted about uh, sexual abuse of minors. And this is obviously, you know, extraordinarily sensitive. And this piece of content was, you know, taken down. Um, and it was found to be, you know, very graphic and something that was, you know, deeply unpleasant. At the same time as being, you know, deeply, deeply unpleasant and very, very hard to to read, it was something that raised legitimate questions again about sentencing and how people, um, you know, who are involved in these kinds of crimes should be treated as a society. So again, something that is important for people people to be able to have discussions about in spite of how difficult it is um, you know to read some of these things so the board is constantly looking to navigate these issues and we judge each piece of content based on a set of several things um, how does content interact with uh, meta's own rules and standards so their own stated rules that apply to the platforms um, is content compatible with that we're looking at the values that the company says that they abide by. And of course, then you sometimes have tension between the values that the company says they abide by and the actual rules that they've come up with. And we look to clarify that tension. The third piece, which is where I think the most interesting you know, and important angle for the board is, is how content uh, and the decisions made about that content relate to international human rights standards. So of course, there have been decades of work by all sorts of experts and leaders you know, across the ecosystem, which have worked to codify human rights standards and norms, You know how we think it is acceptable to treat people and communities in a way that protects their freedom of expression and their human rights. And the board is constantly going back to that body of knowledge to try and make decisions in a way that is principled and ultimately puts those people first. It boggles my mind at how complicated this is. See, I, I love uh, tech <laughs> stuff. I love doing the technology side because I've said this many times. The beauty of technology is either it works or it doesn't, right? Either it's wired properly or it's not. Whereas when we start getting into the application of technology in the real world, gosh, people just make it so much more complicated. Yes, actually, I, I used to be at SpaceX. And, you know, my favorite thing about ah. that, going to there from where I previously was, you know, I, I was working at Facebook before that, was ultimately the rocket launches or it doesn't. There's no spinning it. You know, it either, you know, puts a satellite up there or it doesn't. And everyone knows when it doesn't. But this isn't like that. And that's what makes it so, I think, challenging and sometimes unsatisfying for a lot of people. You know, there are relatively fewer opportunities for the board to say, aha, we have absolutely nailed it. And everyone else is wrong about this. You know, there is the rocket, you know, launching. Um, you know, sometimes there's a lot of debate about whether that's a rocket or not. <laughs> <laughs> Dex and I will have more to say about the Facebook Oversight Board after these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? 
Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. When you start talking about things like digital rights, I mean, there have been plenty of cases, even well before the, the Facebook Oversight Board was formed, where you had some really thorny cases where the question was, uh, who is ultimately uh, in the wrong or more in the wrong on some of these cases where it became a question of uh, freedom of speech and digital rights versus someone's right to privacy. These are very complicated matters, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to be the person to have to adjudicate which is the most important. Um, let's, let's, let's backtrack a little bit, though. Let's talk a little bit about the actual formation of the board mm -hmm. itself. Can you talk about sort of how that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So the board was created by uh, Facebook, back when it was still called Facebook. And the first um, sort of you know, vision for the board was uh, announced by Mark Zuckerberg back in 2019. And he wrote a, a long note, which he posted on his Facebook, outlining the vision for an independent body that could make decisions about some of the most consequential content issues that the company was facing. And the, the sort of elevator pitch for why you would want to create this sort of body was very simple. Um, the world is of enormous and growing complexity. And there are fewer and fewer decisions that the company can just go and make successfully on its own. So having an independent oversight body filled with leaders and experts from a lot of different backgrounds was a way of uh, expanding the diversity of perspectives that the company had available to it. And at the same time, building a structure that gave people trust in the rules and the way those rules were enforced on these platforms that have become such a big part of our lives. And the design of the board, incredibly complex, something that took quite a long time because I think the company, to its credit, wanted to get this right. So they went out and they consulted an enormous number of different stakeholders around the world, um, you know, more than 2,000 people um, you know, in, in many, many countries. And they spent um, about a year trekking around, basically, having these consultations with civil society, um, with experts, with lawyers, um, you know, with policymakers, until they, they came up with a structure which was, um, you know, I think, really, really strong and, and is the one that we now use. So they built this institution with three components. Uh, there's the board, which is what everyone immediately thinks of when they think of the oversight board. Right now, we've got 20 members you know, who come from a lot of different backgrounds and, and perspectives. Um, ultimately, the board might grow up to a maximum of 40 people. We then have a, a trust, and the trust has a set of trustees who operate, again, independently uh, from Meta. Their job is to oversee uh, the sort of fiduciary, you know, duties that are needed to run an organization like this. And the real value is to protect the independence of the board. So Meta does fund the board. They put money into that trust. Uh, there's an irrevocable trust 
trust that's overseen by those trustees. And the trustees are there basically to ensure that all the you know sort of messy um, you know conversations about resourcing and so on take place at arm's length from where the decisions are happening. And trustees, of course, don't have any role in the decision making and the sort of substantive you know policy work of the board. You then have the third uh, piece of the board, which is where I sit, which is the full time team of staff. So um, behind those board members, you have a full time team of you know other experts and people who help keep the institution running, um, who help steer those cases through their life cycle um, at the board. And so um, the board uh, was announced in uh, May 2020. That's when the first 20 members were announced. And then we started accepting cases towards the end of that year. And then the first decisions came out in January 2021. So we're just a little bit over a year into the life of the board now. Um, and you know we've delivered over 20 uh, cases now, um, over 100 you know, detailed policy recommendations to the company. Some of these cases have been very, very significant. Others have been very significant, but have received less attention. But we're starting to see the uh, impact of the board's work on the company starting to see tangible outcomes in terms of how those rules are structured um, at Meta and how they're being enforced. Um, and we've got you know years left to run for the board. So I think it's it's an extraordinarily um, exciting experiment, um, you know, which Meta committed to, but is one that is becoming you know more real by the day and and less like a, a experiment and more like an enduring institution that I think will be around for some time. I like that word experiment because I feel like that's what a lot of people viewed the board when it was first <clears> announced. It was really a, a, a new kind of concept, this idea of an outside entity that was independent of the platform saying, uh, making judgments about whether or not the platform was actually enforcing its own rules, whether those rules were legal <laughs> in some cases, right. I'm sure. Um, and, and, and again, like the context of each case, uh, I think a lot of people were kind of, kind of, um, confused by it. Like it was surprising. Right. It was not something they would think of, but then you also have to consider the fact that meta has such a, a global reach, right? It's, uh, it's very easy. I think, especially for people in my country, in the United States, it's very easy for us to be so us centric that we right. forget the, the reach and, and how deep the penetration is in other parts of the world. Uh, and so we don't even start to consider the fact that we need to have a different set of rules in order to guide those organizations because we're used to everything being U.S. So that, I think, was part of the confusion. Yeah, I think, you've, I think you raise a really important point, Jonathan. I mean, um, yeah. so much of the discourse, you're absolutely right, is driven by folks in the United States, and if not in the United States, in Western Europe. And we are the parts of the world which are super connected. You know, our experience of connectivity, um, you know, is absolutely phenomenal compared to the experience that a lot of people in other communities have. And um, I think people often take connectivity for granted in those markets. Um, you know, we've just seen, you know, in the last few days and weeks, what it means to be connected, um, you know, in places like Ukraine or in Russia. Where people are, you know, struggling to have their voices heard, and the extraordinary impact that social media can have in allowing people to mobilize and com communities to organize and and to fight for things like freedom, you know, a struggle that again a lot of people in the West have sort of, you know, until fairly recently had sort of taken for granted. So I do think the fact that the board operates and thinks very globally is a huge asset. Over half of our cases so far have been from the global South, and the board has been very deliberate about going after issues in places like India and Myanmar, um, you know, and Latin America, because we think those areas have been neglected for too long when it comes to looking at content moderation and, and the discourse about protecting speech online. Uh, well, I think another thing that really sh nails home how important this is for me is that if we start removing things like, like ethics and or morality or whatever, and we're looking at things from purely a business standpoint, from Meta's point of view, um, clearly the company gets the majority of its revenue from places like the United States mm -hmm. and Western Europe, less so in other places where you have this limited connectivity. Right. And as a result, from that business perspective, again, not taking humanity into account, you start to understand, oh, this is where they're going to dedicate their resources because this is where the revenue comes from. That's where an, uh, an independent board really becomes important because they don't have that connection to this is where the revenue comes from. So this is where we need to focus. Right. It's it, they're divorced from that so that they can take that approach where they say, no, let's really look 
at these areas where traditionally the company itself may not have dedicated a lot of its focus and make certain that the decisions that are being made are really the right ones and are not neglecting a population simply because they're not driving ad revenue the way other parts of the world are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the board doesn't look at things like uh, Meta's public relations you know, strategy or the impact of decisions on advertisers or you know, Meta's ad revenues. That is absolutely not a rubric that we're interested in. Um, we're, we're focused on you know, advancing free speech and human rights and very much um, ensuring that the company treats its users better. And I think the way that the board was constructed, bringing together leaders you know, who have the kinds of backgrounds and perspectives and expertise who allow us to go and focus on that, um, you know, who aren't being sidetracked into you know, considering you know, those other issues, I think that's a huge strength um, for the board. It's an extraordinarily principled set of leaders, um, and they really um, you know, want to focus on doing good for the users um, on, of Meta's products, but also wider society. It's not just about the users of, of Facebook and Instagram, because we know that those platforms and you know, the billions of people who use them also have a deep, deep impact on um, broader society and, and the world we all live in. Well, then let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, process. And can you talk a bit about how the board decides which cases to consider? I, I assume that they receive far more <laughs> than they yep. actually uh, go through. Yeah. So, I mean, since we started accepting cases towards the end of 2020, we've now received over a million user appeals. Users wow. of uh, Facebook and Instagram, um, that's the primary route by which appeals come to the board. Meta can also refer questions to the board, but we've naturally wanted to focus as much as possible on hearing the appeals that are coming up from the users of those platforms. So we've taken a lot more um, from, from users um, in, in cases. Um, the way we, we sift through that avalanche of um, you know, incoming appeals, um, some of it is based on how we um, you know, categorize um, those appeals that are coming in. So uh, we have systems and you know processes that are designed to sift us down to a, a a smaller number, which is still quite large. Which then people are you know going through you know in in a lot of detail. So the big criteria we use as those cases are coming in are all these cases that we think um, have the potential to impact a lot of users of. Um, of Meta's platforms, we obviously want to take on um, you know cases with the limited resources of the board, which have the biggest impact for people. So we're looking at things that have the potential to impact thousands or millions of people um, around the world. We're looking for things that raise important questions about Meta's policies. So you might have a single case. It might you know be something about COVID misinformation in France, or it might be something about you know um, you know hate speech you know in uh, in India that might raise big questions more generally about the policies and the, the rules and how they're enforced on Meta's platforms. The other one is, um, is this something that's going to have a big impact on freedom of expression? And does it raise big questions about public discourse online? So um, with each of those cases, really, we're looking for these emblematic cases, things that represent something much, much larger. We aren't really designed and we've never conceived of ourselves as a sort of general customer service type of infrastructure. Um, with 20 board members and you know about 50 staff, there's no way we could possibly um, hear every single one of those million plus appeals. Um, it just wouldn't be sustainable. But what we can do is pick up um, you know a set of cases every year, which are then having a much wider um, area of impact on the company, and that ultimately will then see the impact on in um, potentially millions of of other you know situations that are playing out every day on Facebook and Instagram. So it's like uh, it's like setting precedent almost where you can say, all right, we take this one case, which is very specific here, but we can generalize the uh, the decision, whether we uphold or overturn whatever Facebook's uh, action was. And that in turn sets the precedent where similar cases that follow this should go along the same general pathway. I see the real value of that, especially again, like talking about a, a company as large as, as Meta is. Um, I, I mean, everyone knows there's just, it's impossible for that company to monitor everything that's posted. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's not practical at all. But being able to set these rules and be able to say, yes, this this is a, a, a valid application of your policy 
and to uh, to send that message to the company so that it can continue to do that. And, uh, and in the knowledge that it's doing the right thing according to the rules it's set up, or as is the case, I think it, I think more than, I think more often than not in the cases that have been heard, we've actually seen an overturning of Facebook's decision where it's really seeing the message of you don't, you don't have this right on this one. <laughs> That's to, right. You need to re-examine. That's right. I mean, um, you know, well, well, more than half of the cases we've taken on, we've we've ended up overturning the company. Um, and I think in the recommendations, um, you know, going back to that, well, more than half of the recommendations we've given to the company, they've agreed to those recommendations and they've committed to doing them, or they've really, um, you know, implemented them. And I think um, that that is a, a powerful sign that the board is working, that we are starting to have an impact on those bigger issues. Um, when we talk about cases, people often gravitate naturally to the uh, part where we overturn the company um, or we we upheld them, the binding aspect of the decision itself on a specific bit of content. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the um, really interesting, impactful work of the board comes in terms of our recommendations. So there's more than a uh, hundred um, detailed pieces of guidance that we've given to the company because that's where um, you have the chance to shape those broader standards and how they're enforced um, to really deliver um, a lot of very detailed practical guidance to the company, which of course is a recommendation and they don't have to follow it, but they do have to, um, you know, commit to studying it, you know, um, you know, for real and and to communicate transparently um, what they're going to do with those recommendations we've given to them. And the company has been pretty good about doing that up till now. Well, and, and again, uh, to think back on just the way tech companies grow, from my perspective, generally I see uh, kind of a <laughs> probably a 70-30 split of uh, engineers really pushing uh, an idea which ends up blossoming and perhaps even going to to the the beloved unicorn status uh, and then maybe 30% marketing which is really pushing the hype of the thing <laughs> right but but you know that's that, that that whole process you know it's all about growth 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 and uh, you eventually hit a point where you have grown larger than what you are easily able to manage, whether it's because you've expanded into other markets, like just going into Europe and the GDPR uh, considerations you have to have. Like, these are all things that I think a lot of people just don't take into account early on. And so I definitely see that that value coming in again, because reaching out and creating this this organization where you have uh, representatives from all over the world. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people have harped on the fact that I think the United States has the 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 most number of representatives on the board as it currently stands, but it the the board is made up of people from all over, right? That's right, absolutely. Uh, I think about one quarter of our board currently, um, you know, comes from the United States. Um, you know, I think that reflects partly, you know, global inequities and the fact that you you just have a disproportionate number of you know experts and institutions that generate expertise, um, which are located in the West, um, but. Every member of the board, I think, has you know extraordinary skills and expertise, and um, certainly in the next round of members, we're looking to continue expanding the diversity um, of the board. Well, and that's nice too, because again, <laughs> in in tech companies in particular, diversity is an issue that we have seen come up again and again, where we, or rather, a lack of diversity has frequently been an issue. So, making certain that that becomes uh, and a priority is really refreshing to be able to break free of that very narrow view of the world that uh, some companies can develop due to a, a just a lack of perspectives. It's not consciously ignoring things, but just because of, you know, the, the actual individual backgrounds. Um, I, I wanted to talk also about actually the process of considering a case. Like what is, uh, how does the board do that? As I understand it, they're, they, have a, a, a focus group essentially that looks at a case in great scrutiny? That's right. So when a case comes into the board, we convene a panel and it's five members. Um, the membership of these panels is regularly rotating. Um, and you have uh, a, a sort of cross-section of expertise and different backgrounds represented within those panels. You always have at least one member of the panel um, who's coming from the region where that content, you know, is um, you know coming from or, or or implicates, and that panel takes the initial 
um, you know, review of the case. They spend a decent amount of time studying these things in depth and trying to reach a sort of provisional um, decision. The decision that they come up with on a case then goes before the entire board. So that's another, you know, sort of check within the board to ensure that we are really studying these things with a, you know, 360 degree perspective. Um, uh, every decision is then um, voted on by the entire board, and decisions have to, you know, receive a majority of support from the board. Otherwise, they can be sent back, and you know, we can convene a new panel to look at these things. But I think another very important part of this process, um, which I'll call out, is the public comment process. So unusually, you know, I think for for an entity, you know, that's been empowered to take on this role, we we also want to ensure that we aren't just limiting our expertise to ourselves. So we do, you know, obviously provide independent oversight of the company. There are many, many more points of view, though, um, from the world um, that we thought it was important to reflect in the decision-making process. So with every case and every um, you know, policy um, you know, that we're, we're working to review, we are going out to civil society, um, to academics, um, to regular users of these platforms and saying, if you have a point of view, share it with us. Um, so we have this process called the public comment process, and we get really valuable comments that are submitted by people all over the world. Um, you know, cases from the Middle East, um, you know, we've received, you know, um, really, really valuable input from grassroots, you know, organizations um, uh, from countries all over the region. Um, uh, when we uh, had the big Trump case, looking at whether President Trump's uh, access to Facebook and Instagram should be restored, we had over 9,000 comments, you know, delivered from around the world. So we had, you know, everyone from, you know, uh, members of the public, you know, to uh, people who are in the U.S. Congress, uh, submitting very detailed um, guidance and what they thought would be the implications on free speech um, and and human rights. So I think the board um, has, um, you know, a process that's designed to reflect our own expertise and to, you know, bring in that diversity internally. But we also think about the diversity in terms of the external world. We've got a bit more to talk about with the Facebook Oversight Board after the following break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. One of the big problems Meta had was that it failed to have a policy in place that would allow sort of an indefinite ban. And that really what Meta needed to do was either set a firm limit on what the ban was or to just go ahead and call it a lifelong ban. But it could not exist in this sort of nebulous, vague banning condition. And uh, I remember when that came out, I saw a lot of knee-jerk reactions all across the board, like in, in various ways. But to me, it was really nailing home for the first time in my experience what the Oversight Board was doing in, in terms of Meta's policies in that it's saying there are cases that are falling outside of your of your rules and you have to you have to craft the rules to cover these cases. Otherwise, there's no way to say whether it's fair or not. You don't cover it. That's exactly right. There was a very important principle at stake here, right? Which is that the rules should apply to everyone, and everyone also includes the company. So the rules exist mm-hmm. to um, you know, govern the way that users get to use those platforms, but they also govern the way Meta should be serving their users. Um, so the, you know, the fact that the company didn't have clear, transparent, defined standards on how to navigate an issue like this, that was a huge gap in... Um, you know, the systems that are designed to serve their users. And, um, you know, ultimately, it pushed the company to go and rewrite those rules and to create new, um, you know, processes and standards, which I think will serve them much better in future situations where they have to navigate these very, very thorny um, issues. You know, ultimately, if you don't write down the rules, and everyone can't see them, and, you know, see them transparently for what they are, it makes it much more likely that a big company like Meta is going to be able to get away with not treating their users fairly. So I do think it was an important point to really defend. Um, You know, the board also said that the suspension, um, you know, was correct. So it was the correct Mm -hmm. move to go and suspend him, um, you know, quickly from access to Facebook and Instagram. But uh, despite that, there were still, you know, bigger, you know, principles at stake and the company didn't think through the long-term consequences of how they did it. Right. Yeah. I, it, it makes me think, and you may not get this reference. Actually, a lot of my listeners might not get this reference, but it makes me think of, of Calvin Ball, which was a thing in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. And it was a game that this little boy named Calvin would play where he literally would make up rules as the game was being played. And there was no way to know how to win the game because he was the one making the rules in real time as the game's being played out. And I have a feeling that that was kind of how we were seeing meta with some of these policies too, in that there was obviously this huge external pressure on the company to take action. Uh, and, and the company obviously was already in a space where there, this external pressure had been building for quite some time, particularly here in the United States. I mean, Zuckerberg had to appear before the Senate a couple of times leading up to this. And so there obviously was this call to action, but Again, until you have those transparent rules that everyone understands and applies to everyone, uh, taking action on its own isn't enough. It's it's something that could easily be reversed because if if things swing a different way, then the company can stand accused of unfairly applying rules to certain people. In fact, we've seen that discourse rise as well. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to use that Kelvin ball analogy now. Um, I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, we're basically, we are designed to be the anti-Kelvin ball uh, mechanism. We do not think mm-hmm. Kelvin ball is a good you know, um, game to play when it comes to speech for billions of people online. I do confront this narrative all the time, which is, is the board a distraction somehow from regulation? Like, is this something that is getting in the way of the bigger fix that we need as a society? And I just think that's so, you know, misplaced as a concern and, and simply the evidence doesn't, you know, back it up. Um, you know, policymakers have been looking at these issues for years 
and they've been moving at an incredibly glacial pace. And part of the reason they have been moving at that pace, I don't think it's necessarily you know due to any ill intent. It's because these are massive, deeply complex issues, and it takes years to align the interests, you know, and then to you know codify you know legislation and to you know build a coalition to support that legislation. The board is designed to be something that solves one small part of this overall you know, challenge with social media and to move faster. So, I mean, we've gone ahead and we've built this institution, which is starting to serve the users of Facebook and Instagram and, and you know, broader communities who are impacted by those platforms. Nothing we're doing is getting in the way of policymakers also getting stuck in and, you know, having, you know, a broader, you know, sweep at the systemic and the structural issues that also impact social media. So we really don't see ourselves in any way as a substitute for, you know, all the effort of policymakers and all the work that needs to be done. Um, we're a complement. We're a very small complement. And, you know, um, we're looking forward to seeing, you know, what people come up with in terms of other proposals to, you know, improve social media and deliver a healthier social media environment. And yet, uh, even though the board is this this small slice, uh, because of its global nature, it is, I would argue, uh, more well positioned to tackle its particular mission than any regional government would be, simply because, again, you're trying to legislate something that has a, a global reach but you don't have global jurisdiction. So you've got these various nations around the world all grappling with similar issues, but unless there's some sort of broad agreement across the world as to you know how to go about doing this, uh, it's just going to be very messy for a long time. So that's another reason I think it does take a long time to see things on the regulatory side take shape. Uh, not to mention in places like here in the United States, Whenever there's a change in administration, there's a massive change in the position of regulation. Mm -hmm. So you can have a regulatory body that uh, completely changes uh, shape from one administration to another. And then any any progress you were making on any particular issue might get reset. So uh, I think that having something that's at least addressing part of it and a very important part, even if it is a small one, is... Uh, fantastic. I, it's at least it's encouraging because I think otherwise the narrative tends to be that we're kind of stuck in a quagmire waiting for a solution to something that I think everyone recognizes is a problem, although they may disagree what that problem specifically is. <laughs> they just all yep. recognize that there is a problem. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's it's interesting, Jonathan. I mean, we actually this is where there's a real consequence of social media. And all the years we've lived in the digital era in how it impacts our thinking, right? Um, all of our attention spans have become way shorter. Um, I learned something interesting the other day. The average attention span for a goldfish is 15 seconds. And the average attention span for a person uh, today is about nine seconds. <laughs> um, so, like, we we literally, you know, have these incredibly short attention spans, and because of that, everyone's looking for really simple solutions to complex problems. And I think of this as the sort of BuzzFeed approach to solving problems. We all want this one weird trick to solve content moderation, and you're hoping there's there's that one weird trick that will, you know, do everything for you. And I think the experience of the last decade has very clearly shown us that's not the case at all. There is no, um, you know, special piece of regulation. There is no, um, you know, incredibly well-crafted institution, including the oversight board, that's going to solve all your problems in their totality. And anyone who's claiming that, you know, either from government or from the tech industry is just lying. Um, we can all solve bits of that problem. And together, we add up to something that's very, very meaningful and will protect users and communities. Um, but we should all be realistic about what we can do and recognize the scale of the challenge. Very well said. I could not agree more. Uh, I, I think it's incredibly beneficial for listeners out there if you if you really want to get an understanding of how complex this is, is simply go and review one of the cases that the the board tackled and really read up on all the different uh, uh, factors about it because you start to really, you get past that knee-jerk reaction, right? You might initially have a, a, a feeling of this should go this way or this should go that way. But as you really dive into it and you start to pull back and look at the larger implications, then you might start to understand there isn't a simple on-off switch. The world is not a binary system. We cannot treat it that way. Uh, we have to We have to take into consideration all the complexities 
including where there may be gaps in policy. And that's why there's this, this issue, because we can't definitively say this is against the rules if there are no rules that govern it. So I think that if, if people do take that time, which obviously with a nine second attention span is going to be challenging, <laughs> but if they do take that time, they're, they're going to gain that greater appreciation because I, I, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Like I, I'll see a story pop up and very quickly make a judgment. And it's only by resisting that urge and, and engaging in critical thinking and taking those those further steps that I can get past that. And I don't do it all the time. I, I t- say all the time on the show, the two things I advocate for the strongest are compassion and critical thinking. I think the two of them together are absolutely necessary if you want to, if you want a better world. Uh, but even though I, I advocate strongly for it, I also admit fully that I am not I'm not a, 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 a perfect steward of that approach. Sometimes I fall victim to it too. And I really think that by diving in a little further and, and reading up on these things, people can get a greater appreciation for the complexities that are involved. Um, I, I certainly do not envy anyone on the board's position. Uh, I, I am fascinated by the process, but I cannot imagine really dedicating the kind of time and attention to sometimes incredibly emotionally charged situations and determining whether or not a company's decision on that matter was in line with its policy or not. Absolutely. And um, this this is the challenge, right? All the board members are are human beings. They're all looking at the same headlines we're all looking at. Um, these are issues which are, can be extraordinarily emotive. And there is always you know, an urge today for people to make those snap decisions about these things. And the board has been designed not just in the extraordinarily impressive people who've been added to the board, but in the mechanisms that go into making that institution. It's been designed so that we don't make those snap decisions. Um, You know, we provide that thoughtful, you know, measured review of the decisions that Meta has made. They have a responsibility to act first and to act fast on a lot of these issues. But then we're going to come in and take a closer look and say, have you thought about this you know, implication for you, your users? There used to be that slogan, which became very you know, popularized and then maligned from Facebook, move fast and break things. And I always tell my team mm-hmm. half-jokingly, only half-jokingly, that our slogan, if there was one, is move thoughtfully and defend human rights, because that's a much better way of actually going about doing that. <laughs> well, and again, it's one of those things where you go from the technical aspect of let's make something that's really cool to the application aspect of how does this interact with the real world. Uh, I'd like to wrap this up by sort of uh, asking, are there are there plans, like really right now the Oversight Board is focused primarily upon uh, content moderation policies. Are there plans for that to expand beyond Facebook's content moderation, or is that just going to be the primary focus of the board from here on out? Yeah, you made a very important point earlier, Jonathan, which was about how um, you know people can lose focus as they scale. And so we think of ourselves in many ways as an organization, as a startup. We're a very small you know, group taking on a very big you know, mission. We've evolved enormously over the last couple of years. To navigate through the sort of organizational and strategic challenges as an organization, we think the right thing to do is to stay focused right now. Meta is a huge mm-hmm. challenge. Just getting our arms around the mission of the board today is something that you know takes up an enormous amount of work, and um, we want to you know make sure that we're delivering the maximum impact in terms of that original mission before we look to expand further. Having said that, you know we absolutely recognise that the, this is a shared challenge across the industry. All the problems that Meta is dealing with are problems that manifest in different ways for other platforms. I mean, look at Spotify or Netflix over the last few months and all the various you know controversies and and problems that they've they've been experiencing. So um, for now. The way we think about it is uh, focus on getting that core mission done, share as many of our learnings um, as widely and as transparently as possible in a way that can be helpful to other companies. And down the road, you know, over the next, you know, coming years, um, I think we'll be looking to explore whether there's something else we can deliver um, for companies. And, you know, as the board evolves itself and we look to uh, expand the things that we're looking at within Facebook and Instagram. There may be other things that you know then come into focus for the rest of the industry, and they say, "Hey, actually, maybe the oversight board can be helpful for us as we develop our plans." Oh, fascinating, Dex. Thank you so much for joining the show and giving us more information about the oversight board. I have a much greater appreciation 
for what it does now than I did uh, before we even started chatting. It was really informative and educational. I hope my listeners enjoyed it as well. Great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks again to Dex for joining the show. Uh, It was really interesting to hear about the board's mission directly from someone who works with the organization. And it gave me a greater appreciation for the scope of the board's job, as well as the potential impact of its decisions. And it really does highlight the necessity to seek out a diverse array of perspectives as companies scale up. In many ways, I totally understand how Facebook could find itself in such a complex situation that it required the creation of an external entity. I mean, come on, let's let's really be real here. Cards on the table. Facebook evolved out of a tool that was meant to allow male Harvard students to rate the attractiveness of female Harvard students. That's what the predecessor to Facebook was all about. So that wasn't exactly aiming to become a nexus of global communications. And the process of growth and scaling and expansion is one that happened so quickly that it's not a surprise to me that people at the company didn't necessarily realize they needed a robust set of policies until problems began to pop up. And in many ways, Facebook's path could serve as a lesson to other platforms, either to create their own independent oversight boards or to incorporate departments that are dedicated to the formation and execution of policies and to really staff that with a diverse group of perspectives so that you can best serve your users, right? If your users are all over the world, then you darn well need to have that diversity of perspective in order to serve them properly. And I'm sure there will be cases where the oversight board will make a decision that I will have trouble understanding. Uh, There may well be cases where I have a fundamental disagreement with the board's conclusion. But at the same time, I have to account for several facts. Namely, uh, while I feel strongly about human rights issues, I am by no means an expert, right? I I do not spend the same amount of time and energy researching these cases, nor do I have the background in human rights and digital rights that the board members have. And the conclusion that the board comes to could be nested in a much deeper problem, one that where Facebook itself lacks the framework to issue a clear decision on a matter. And it might be that the board comes to its decision not because of specific matters with the case, but because there are no actual rules that govern what Facebook does. And therefore, you know, if there are no rules that say Facebook can do this, that's a problem. As Dex indicated, reality is a a complicated and messy matter. In the end, I am glad there's an independent group holding Facebook accountable and one that can compel Facebook to reverse decisions that on close examination do not appear to follow with Facebook's stated rules and goals. I do hope to see a more broad application of those principles across the web and the tech industry in general. Um, That kind of consistency is really important. And again, I don't anticipate agreeing with every single one of those decisions, but at least I can be confident that the decisions were made by people who were taking incredible care and consideration when judging the matter Uh, and not just be something where, you know, it's a moderator who's under intense pressure to look through as many comments or, or posts as they possibly can. And they're just hitting, you know, delete or, or they're leaving alone one after the other in order to, to get through it and, incredible backlog, right? Like I, I, my heart really goes out to moderators too. We've heard some terrible stories about the emotional impact that moderating can have on folks who have to go through all these different types of posts on Facebook that get reported. Anyway, that wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for people I should have on the show, or topics I should cover, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.